1: Yes, thank you, Ben. This is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Robin Houston-Bean, who's got a very good story. And she actually runs a foundation called the Sun Will Rise Foundation. And I'm very anxious to talk to Robin because uh, I've heard a lot about her and I never got a chance to meet her until tonight. So I'm looking forward to it. Hello, Robin.
0: Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Um, Robin, as I always like to do is kind of go back in time and um, anybody, nobody puts on their um, high school yearbook that this is what they want to be doing. But, you know, due to circumstances beyond our control, this is what happened. So would you mind um, elaborating a little bit on how you got into what you're doing and what what was the motivating force?
0: Sure. So um, I have three children and my middle son, Nicholas, was the only one who had a substance use issue and um we didn't really know much about it at that time at the beginning because i thought he just smoked pot like many other kids some of the kids in the neighborhood would drink some would smoke Mm -hmm. pot and i didn't really know that there was much of a big deal um although i was very upset about it and i kept yelling at him and you know being like a mom you know discouraging that use because there is alcoholism in our family tree. So I knew, you know, addiction was an issue. Um, all three of my children listened to my message about not being um, drinkers because that would lead them down the wrong path. But Nick thought he could outsmart um, marijuana and that, that it would be OK for him. But um, it really wasn't. And, and we had the regular teenage battles with that back and forth. And uh, Nick was a really smart kid. He took the SATs in sixth grade and tested into John Hopkins' talented youth program. You know, he was just a really bright kid. But I always say he was my smartest kid, but my stupidest kid because he would take risks with his personal, you know, well being, his safety, or whatever, and not think of the consequences. And I think that pot use was part of that risk-taking that was so ingrained in just his uh, genetic DNA. And um, so this pot use made him depressed. Well, he was depressed. He thought the pot helped him with his depression. So it exacerbated the use of it. He would say, I'm sad. I'm smoking more marijuana. And I think the marijuana was making him more depressed. So it's a vicious circle. In any event, he went off to college with us just thinking he had a problem with pot, but in fact, he had a problem with opioids. I only, only know this after the fact when he you know, would, told me the story, but what happened is his first semester, he did really bad at school and he... Um, was very sick, back and forth. We took him to the doctors a number of times, and they said it was bronchitis, it was allergies, it was whatever. But no one thought to test him um, for drug use. I didn't think to ask for it, and Nick wasn't truthful with them. What it actually was was Nick was um, having problems um, with withdrawals down there because he didn't know anyone who, um, you know, was you know a dealer. So what happened is he ended up meeting someone who, who did deal in drugs and introduced him to powdered heroin instead of they didn't have the um, pills. And um, he ended up becoming addicted to powdered heroin uh, his first semester of college, which breaks my heart. Cause I feel like, you know, I sent my kid off to school um, with great expectations then ended up, um, you know, putting the nail in his actual coffin by doing that. Um, he was out of my sight And I couldn't keep track of what was going on. And it really haunts me to this day. But what happened is when he came home from that first semester and we pulled him out of school because he was doing so bad, um, he finally told us what was going on. And, you know, it's the last things I think I expected to hear was that, hey, mom, I have something to tell you. I've ruined my life. I'm addicted to heroin and I've tried to quit on my own. I can't do it. And I just want to be normal again. And he just broke down and cried and it broke my heart, broke my husband's heart. And he didn't want anybody else to know because of that stigma that surrounds, um, substance use. He was very embarrassed about it. And I said, you know, I have to tell my immediate family. I've tell my sister, we're a very close family and my parents, I don't keep things from them. And, but we kept that circle tight. Um, due to Nick, not wanting other people to know. So, Um, it was hard on me not being able to share what was going on with my friends and everything. I knew they knew something was up, but, um, Nick wanted help. We got him into the mass general arms program, which is a specialized program for young adults in Boston. And he signed off on the paperwork so we could be part of the solution with him. And, uh, you know, to see the drug, um, tests coming back, whether they were positive or negative talking to his doctors um, and just being part of a support team. And he did really well. We, we had to go to parent classes. And I think that's the real first time I really got a deep dive into the, um, addiction as a disease model. And I learned a lot about it. Um, I learned how hard it is to be like telling someone just stop doing it. It's, you know, so hard to do. And, uh, Nick went on, um, they put him on suboxone with the goal of weaning him down uh, to eventually getting him off of that. During that time, you know, that he was doing this, he was doing well. Uh, You know, we said, you know, you need to do something else besides the college path. What, what do you want to do with your life? And he said he wanted to be an EMT with the hope some someday becoming a paramedic and, um, you know, firefighter along those lines. So he he did. He went to his intensive outpatient um, with Mass General and he went to EMS classes and he did become an EMT. And we were so proud of him. He was so proud of himself as well. Um, but during that time period, uh, we were about seven months into his, into his, um recovery phase there. he was doing really well. And then all of a sudden, he went out with a friend and I'll use friends like this because it wasn't someone and I really knew, but it was someone from his um, past, his drug using past. And I guess that person, from what I can see now because I was able to look into his phone, had been contacting him a little bit. and Nick had weaned way down on his suboxone. so his, cravings were up, his willpower was low, and this person was kind of just nudging him at, I guess, the exact wrong time, but right time for this all to happen.
1: Can you take a second and explain to the listeners what your impression is of Suboxone? Let's explain that.
0: Yeah, so Suboxone is a a medically-assisted treatment. It's a medication that's used to um, help prevent someone um their cravings from happening and it it has a block in it so if someone does use you can't get that high from um the drugs that you you would normally um it's uh, similar to the vivitrol or methadone if you know about that um but they're all slightly different in how they work and uh, how long they work and how often you have to take it and what type um, Nick was on a pill form. There are some films that you dissolve under your tongue and like anything else, they can be abused as well. So when they're getting the drug test, when they're using this, they're actually looking for a certain level of that in their system to make sure they're not um, diverting that medicine and selling it to someone else. Cause you can actually use it um, to get a certain high if you use enough of it. Um, but it is like methadone they they are intended to be a step down and eventually off of it um to then be able to you know lessen those cravings and then be able to go on without having to use medicine
1: you get but, a prescription
0: for suboxone now there's, yeah. does he
1: control it because i know in methadone they have to show up every morning and get a little thimble and they
0: yeah and they
1: drink for the day, you know, and that's until the next day, they do it seven days a week and you can do it. So, um. right.
0: There is a, it's a prescription that you get. There's only, um, a certain number of doctors that are allowed to prescribe it many less than are allowed to prescribe opioids, which is makes no sense at all, right, you should have the same amount of people right. <laughs> that can um, prescribe both, um, but it does, it is, I, I feel like a more modern way of doing it, instead of having you tied to having to go someplace seven days a week, um, you use it, um, you know, at home, and you get your refill prescription, depending on how your doctor's prescription is. Some people only are able to get their prescription every week or sometimes a month. I don't think, I don't know anybody that gets uh, their prescription longer than a month. And a lot of times too, it's because it's a, um, a lowering dose. So that prescription changes often. Um, the Vivitrol is a once a month uh, sh- a shot that people get but similar situations.
1: It's supposed to last 30 days, but rumor has it, it only lasts about 26 or 27 Or for some people. Correct. And then they get the the urge pretty heavy in those Mm -hmm. last three or four days and and be a problem.
0: Yeah. And I think the the good thing about the Suboxone when um, Nick was getting it, it was tied to him, getting, um, therapeutic help, uh, from, uh, you had to see a therapist at the same time that you were doing it. So it was like, you couldn't just take it. And that was it. It was, you had to do some, um, therapy to find out why were you using in the first place and try to work some things through, which I, I don't believe you have to do with the methadone or the Vivitrol.
1: Oh, the methadone, it's the showing up every morning is the big thing. And, and it's supposed to, and you're supposed to be Wean down from it. And then once a month, have a blood test and a urine test to see how much is in your body. Yeah. Okay. So now we're back. He's now the EMTs, we gave up on the college idea.
0: Right? Yeah. So he became an EMT. And he really liked it. I mean, it was like, um, during the seven month period, I hadn't realized how much uh, Nick had been missing. Um, He was back to being his goofy, funny self. He was voted like the most memorable in his high school class. And then he kind of had been like this dreary, sad person when he was using. And now here he is, you know, off of the drugs and being back to being like the life of the family, the, you know, fun loving guy. And he really took to being um, an EMT. He uh, liked helping the people. I do think that maybe it was too soon that um, some, sometimes people talk about these get well jobs, a less pressure job maybe would have been good for him for some period of time, but I don't think he would have wanted to do that. Um, I just think sometimes the pressure of seeing people overdosing, the needle, the para- paraphernalia at the scene um, and just triggering things, hard things to see. You know, he, he uh, came to a scene where, where there was a person who had died by suicide. It was a hanging. It was traumatic. He talked to me about it and I don't know if all that was just too much for him, but um, at, at the time he was doing it, he seemed to enjoy it. So I'm, I'm glad that he got to do um, something that he felt really successful at.
1: That's and, good.
0: Yeah. And then um, so that, that night uh, really it, it haunts me that I, you know, you wish, that you had you know a mom's intuition that something was wrong that something had gone off kilter a little bit but i you know i didn't pick up on anything my daughter actually said um you know she questioned where nick was that evening and i said he's fine he's out with a friend they went to the movies and he said he'll be home soon and and i said why and she's like i just i i don't have a good feeling and i wish i had listened to her further but um, I texted him and he said he would be right home and he was, and, um, so he came in and he put his head right in the refrigerator, like, you know, hungry, teenage, young adult boys do. And while well, he was, he was 20 and, um, to get something to eat. And I, I just kind of put his, my hands on his face and made him look at me. Cause she had said that. And I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just getting something to eat and I'm going up to bed. I have to be up for a really early shift. And I said, okay. And he's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. I love you. I just want you to be okay. He said, I love you too, mom. And off he went up to his room. And that was the last time I saw Nick alive. Um, he apparently had uh, purchased drugs with the, the kid he was with. And uh, had used up in his bedroom after he went to sleep. And um, yeah, you know, that morning when um, I found him, that scene will never leave my memory. Um, It's traumatic to think about. Um, I can hear my guttural, you know, noise I made when I saw him. It was the last thing I I was thinking of because he was doing really well, but I screamed and we had Narcan back then, because this was in 2015. The Narcan was the old fashioned one that you had to put together. And now, now they have the nasal one step, which is, amazing, but, um, my hands didn't want to move correctly. I felt like I was like trying to do it through mud. Like it was just so hard to do. And, you know, I was screaming to call 911. Am I calling my husband? And I tried to do CPR. I could just tell by looking at him that it was too late, but Braintree fire and EMS and, um, police came up and they worked on him and brought him to the hospital. And, um, we followed along, but as soon as we got there, we, they put us in that you know, private room. And I knew right then I said, this, they don't put you there unless they're going to tell you something bad. So they came out and said, um, there was no brain activity, no cardiac activity, and Nick was dead. And I, you know, I, did I ever in a million years think I would lose a child? No. Did I understand at that moment how much, um, substance use is a relapsing disease? No, I know. I know now. And I I learned a lot afterwards. But, um, you know, I thought Nick was one of these kids who had beat it. Like I didn't (laughs) naive, I think, at that time.
1: That's the key. And I know then to that day in the hospital, when you were put in that little room, you know, that's the the worst day of your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been there myself. So I know. And it's just um, and for parents who out there who have a child who is addicted now but alive and there's thinking about it's oh it's so much work it's so much effort and all this stuff it's nothing compared to being on the other side. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the things about the the whole point of our show is to get people to understand that if they're breathing you have a chance.
0: There's hope if they're still alive um for sure. Right.
1: Don't yeah. ever ever give up. No. Um so, and I you're I know the you, know, the, you told me the other day you were probably on the couch for a month kind of frozen in time emotionally. Yeah. And, um, I, I was the exact same thing by the way. I was on the couch for a month and and for people who've never lost a child there's nothing that compares to it. Not a grandparent, not a father or mother it, that's not in the same category whatsoever. There's not even a name for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It's beyond imagination but people that haven't been there but now you must have made a decision in your mind that you were going to do something and this is where the turning point now with what you're doing today so how did you go not get off the couch to um to i'm going to do something
0: yeah it was that what a shift right i was a go-getter type a personality always busy always doing something And, uh, yeah, it just made my whole world crash. And, you know, it was funny when you talk, when you talk about that, like, you don't even know how to breathe properly anymore. It felt like there was like a weight on my chest all the time. And, you know, my family was worried about me, my, you know, sister and my parents and, you know, everyone's trying to fix you like, come on, you know, you got to snap out of it. And, you know, I just want to be like, leave me alone. But, um, I I couldn't read anything, I couldn't watch TV, my brain just didn't want to function that way. But what I did, I did find some solace in just scrolling along Facebook. Like it wasn't posting, but I was just like looking at stuff. And I started Googling like loss due to substance use and, and addiction and overdose and this type of stuff. And um uh, I ended up and I'm not sure how I found it, but I found, um, a group. It was called Gr- GRASP, which is grief recovery after substance passing and they had a group up in Brighton. So I don't know if you callers know, but from Braintree to Brighton is across the uh, city in, in the high traffic time. So it's a pain, but my sister convinced me to go to it and I'm so glad she did. Cause it was really a, a turning point. Um, because I could, I I see people that are still on their couches months and months and months and years later, and I don't know if I if I hadn't made that move, um, I might still be there. Like I'm, I, it scares me to think about. But um, I walked into that room as nervous as anything, not even really being able to form a sentence because I was just wanting to cry, and um, the facilitator there, Ronda Lotti who I consider a a mentor and a friend was amazing. And um, she had lost her daughter um, a a couple years prior. And when I walk into that room, I say I walked in and I found my tribe of people. The people, like I wasn't saying much, but they were all talking about the weird things that I was thinking that like people who weren't grievers would think I was crazy for thinking about and um, saying things that really clicked with me. And I knew I knew this was the right place for me to be, and I went for a number of months. And I was just like, this is so hard to get to, and sometimes I'd be late. And I said, we well, you know we need something here on the south shore, and I had googled and I hadn't found anything. So Rhonda uh, had encouraged me. She said, you know, you could do this. You you have a compassionate heart. Um, I think you would be a good facilitator. And she, you know, taught me some things, gave me some books to read and really just encouraged me to do it. There was a whole bunch of little things that clicked into place. Me meeting someone who worked at the Braintree Town Hall, who had a child who was um, in active addiction. Um, She befriended me and, and then she was like, well, you could have your group here at the Town Hall and all these things clicked. And so I ended up starting a group support group here in Braintree. And just word of mouth, we had, you know, eight people at the first group, 18 at the next one, 24 at the next, you know, it just grew really fast. And I was like, yep, I guess we were on to something that was the need. The need.
1: How did people know about you? How did that grow so how gross-
0: Yeah, so basically, all I did was I put some stuff on um, social media, just from my own page itself, I asked people to share it. I had a friend who worked um, in, well, still works, in the police department. I told them to let people know about it. And uh, the town hall also shared some information about it. And that word of mouth grew really fast. And then once that happened, I started trying to advertise it once we got another group going in a more organized fashion. So I reached out to local funeral homes because they're the first people, you know, a lot of times that are getting these families who are really grieving and they don't know where to go. So here's, I made up little business cards with our info on it, here you go. Um, The town of Weymouth, I met um, a police officer there. And they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to mail your card out whenever there is an overdose loss um, in the town. So those people were finding us. It was just a lot of, you know, word of mouth and then social media and then local community all got together because they knew the need was there. During that time, it started to belong to different groups that were. Um, in the prevention field, because part of this was like, okay, my, my fire in my belly is helping people grieve, not be alone, but let's stop getting new members. Like I, how can I do that? So I kind of went off on two different paths and started like meeting everyone I could who had some voice politicians and, um, prevention advocacy type of stuff and so then, then I became someone in my wider community that was well known. So everybody knew about our group. And so there was a lot of recommendations to people.
1: Well, I was going to say you, you, you're doing this now and you technically haven't had any professional training as a, as a bereavement facilitator. You, you've, you've trained yourself by watching, <laughs> watching the woman over in, in Brighton. And for those who don't live in this area of Massachusetts, going from Braintree to to Brighton is a nightmare. There's no highway to get there. And mm-hmm. you gotta do it at the worst time of the day. So yeah. um how long were the sessions? And that I'll give you a two-part question. How long were your sessions in your group? And how did you did you when did you start checking people out before you let them come into the group? You know, you you mm-hmm. must have kind of interviewed them ahead of time because I I ran a grass group. And I didn't, there was no interview process and I was getting all kinds of people who some were definitely not ready. Some had lost their child two weeks ago or four weeks ago and they were just not, Some someone just, just can't do it. And then there's others that, you know, and then you get some that dominate the entire session mm-hmm. that do all the talking and they, and they, you know, you can't, can't stop them, you know, cause they, and I understand they want to just, let it all out. You know, I, I, you know, I know exactly where they're coming from, but you have to have some kind of techniques where you say to them, you know, uh, that's very nice, Mary, but we'd like to go around the room and do check in with everybody first. And then we'll get back to what your issues are kind of thing. And, and I take it you, you self taught yourself.
0: Well, yeah, Orig- originally, I looked and read some books about facilitation and best practices I took my um, cue from Rhonda and uh, then along the line and my timelines get skewed because and I think part of that is and I don't know if you have it is my grief memory brain <laughs> sometimes blocks me from having perfect timelines for things. But along yeah. the way, I um, became involved with a Franklin Cook, who is a professional grief facilitator, like that's his job. He worked for TAPS for a number of years and that they provide grief support for um, uh, families who uh, have lost someone in the um, armed forces. So um, he, it's a weird long story, but we connected and a number of other facilitators connected with him in Massachusetts. And he started to hold some facilitation training because I was telling him when he was interviewing me, about what was needed, I said, I would love to provide more support to the community, but I am only one person. I can only do so many groups because I run a business and I have other, you know, I have a family, I have other commitments that I have to do. I would do one every night of the week if I could. Emotionally, you can't do that. And um, just, it just didn't fit. So how do we train more facilitators so we can get this out there to the rest of the communities in Massachusetts? And so he started to do some trainings, and those were very well received. and it gave me some more tweaks to what I was doing. And I think one of the really important things that I changed from the grasp model that I had been going to I had everybody just talk you know in a circle, they could tell their story as they went around. And we changed that to instead just having that brief introduction, um, Who are you? Who are you there? Because of the relationship, how long ago it was, you know, what did they pass from? Let everyone's voice into that circle. And then let's open this up. And that way it prevents like it taking the whole entire time for people just telling their stories. And we can really get into the actual, you know, grief, like, How are you dealing with your grief? What is someone doing that maybe you're not doing that might help you without giving each other advice, but talking about what helps us? Um, And it really changed the flow of the the meetings for me and in a really positive way. And it also gave me some, um, those trainings gave me some uh, abilities to deal with more difficult members. Cause you hate to think that in a grief group, there's difficult members, but there, there are, there can be people who think they know everything or people who won't stop talking or people who, you know, bring up political things that don't belong there, or, you know, they, they're just going way off on a tangent or, or butting heads with another person. So how to do it with confidence. Um, and then I was able to give this um, to the other people that I was starting to train. So I'm now am in a position that I help, um, train a, a new facilitators in the state of Massachusetts. Um, and I'm really, you know, happy to do that because I think the more grief support, um, that's out there, the better for our communities, because it's, it's a healthy healing thing. Um, that if we didn't have this outlet, you know, there could be many more deaths. You, you, from suicide or substance use within our own community. So um, I'm glad to be able to help spread that facilitator role to other people.
1: And the one thing I worry about the most is that um, the suicides are up and how many people are hiding their, their grief so much then they try to spring it along. And when you, you really can't talk to a uh, even a relative, a cousin or a brother or somebody they. It's not in your shoes because they, they think you should get over it and move on and that sort of thing. And it, it doesn't work that way. Right, it stays with you for the rest of your life. You just have to learn to live with it a little bit, but differently. Um, and that kind of brings me to uh, something I was thinking about. In Massachusetts alone, in the past two three years, we've been averaging two thousand overdose deaths a year. Mm-hmm. And so that and this us say in two years, you're looking at 4,000. And now that means it's 4,000 dads as well as 4,000 moms. Mm-hmm. And based on how many grief groups I know that are out there, um, we're not covering it. We're not even close, mm-hmm. especially with the dads. And I know you oversee one of the men grief groups. And um, so in in the groups that you were running, are they are they... What are the ratio of females to males?
0: Yeah, it's definitely, uh, out of all the groups we run, it's it's majority female and majority moms. So we're open to anyone 18 and over who has lost someone due to substance use. They can be grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, siblings, significant others, or just peers that have lost someone. Um, but it's the moms who show up the most I do have the spattering of, of dads. I'm glad we have the private, uh, fathers, um, or men's group, I should say, um, for men, because I, I think it gives them that opportunity where they might not feel comfortable in a mixed group to show their emotions. You know, we, as a uh, society put that, you know, constraint on a guy, you've got to be strong, you've got to be tough. And it might be hard for them to to do that without being in a, uh, you know, exclusive group, but, um, you know, I have, so we have an an email um, that we send out every Sunday and I have about 780 people on that list. But when I, when you talk about those numbers, like there's so many people that don't get that list that don't know about us and don't have uh, the access to to go to these groups. I don't know how we get the word out more than we're doing, but I, I will continue to do that. And we the other thing I have to remember too, is, you know, I'd love to have everybody at a group, but it's a group's not right for everybody. My, my husband is a perfect example. He can't believe the stuff that I do. Why do you want to talk about this all the time? Doesn't it make you sadder? Isn't it hurting you? And I'm like, no, this actually my, me talking about Nick a lot. It, it helps me in my grief for him. He's the opposite. He'd rather not talk about it. He'd rather handle his grief in his own way. And I have to respect that. And at the beginning, I thought I was actually mad at him. I was thought he was cold and uncaring. And I. it took me a while to just figure out every single person grieves differently. And I have to let him grieve his way. He has to let me grieve my way. And we have to just understand that everyone is different. Yeah,
1: I have a tendency to go to the cemetery a lot. And I have a relative that keeps saying to me, you're still going to the cemetery, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I've been going for six years. Yeah. But there's a gentleman there who bought his son a, an automobile for his graduation party and he died in a car accident in that in that yeah. car that he's, he bought for his son. And I'm sure there's a just a tremendous amount of guilt. We mm-hmm. thought he was doing right and it didn't work out, you know, and he's been going to his son's cemetery to the grave every day for 33 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he grieves, you know, and, yeah. and even when he's sick, he still tries to go. Mm-hmm. Doesn't stay long, yeah. but he just wants to go in, go out, you know, and right. I got to meet him, you know, and I, have I same, same thing, you know, everybody's different, you know, And yeah. um, there's a woman that goes and her husband, her husband was sitting on the couch and he asked her to sit and watch TV because he wasn't feeling quite right. And he mm. was sick. And uh, she said, no, I'm too tired. I went upstairs to bed. And he died on the couch that night. Mm. You know, so she's living with this guilt thing. Why didn't I stay? You know, just because I was a little tired, what did I do? And that's a lot of people have all these different things that have gone on. And I know another woman from my grass group that, her daughter shoveled the driveway and she gave him, she gave her $40. Mm -hmm. She never left the house, but -hmm. she was able to make a phone call and her supplier came up and handed her the stuff through the window and she mother didn't even know it. So, you know, and now she feels guilty about, you know, and that, uh, you know, everything is different, you know, so everybody grieves a different way. And you said your pains in your stomach. I, I saw this guy who, who lost two two family relatives in the World Trade Center. And he said the first year, everywhere he went, it was like this giant boulder on his back. Everything, everything he did, you know. And then he said, it's been 10 years. And he said, the boulder's still there, but my back's a little stronger. Mm -hmm. And that's how different people deal, you know. Um, Your name of your foundation is the Sun Will Rise Foundation. How did you come up with that name?
0: So, uh, um, a couple days after Nick died, um, I was searching for answers. Like, how did this happen without me knowing what, what was going on, what's going on. So I kind of was like looking through all of his stuff, all the stuff that was just like, it was life uninterrupted, right? He was there and then he was gone. And I happened to pick up this notebook that I knew was his like he called it his recovery notebook. He was supposed to do his homework and things like that in it for his IOP and stuff like that. And on the front side, the inside cover was a little thing. And it just said, please be happy, the sun will rise. And it was a little sun that was drawn. And um, I actually, I have it as a tattoo. I'll stand up if you can see it. So that's like a copy of his writing. So please be happy, the sun will rise. And then it says Nick.
1: That's a tattoo.
0: Yeah, and
1: and um, I mean, for people who are listening, obviously on the radio, um, she has this tattoo that's on her forearm. That's about six to eight inches, is my my best guess. Mm-hmm. And there's a beautiful sun, and the sun will rise. Be happy is what's written on her arm, and it's quite amazing. So if you ever see Robin in your travels, ask her to pull up her sleeve.
0: <laughs> it was. Will yeah, it was, it was a really important message because I knew it was his message to himself, right? He was saying, come on, get out of this. I can do this. You know, the sun's going to rise. I'm going to be able to, to fight this battle. Um, he didn't, but I found it afterwards. So I'm continuing that battle for him. And I couldn't think of a better name for a grief group. You know, the sun is going to rise. We, you know, whether we can handle it or not, the next day it's going to be here. So how can we do it? How can we do it together? What you know, what, what can we do to help each other through that next day? And, um, it, 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 I'm really happy, you know, I, I pulled that from there and, and it's my mantra that I live with, you know, and I'll rub it, you know, when I'm feeling a little sad and, and I'll feel like, okay, you know, when I feel overwhelmed and I can't do this anymore. And, um, I don't want to go on. You know, you still have those bursts that you can't believe he's gone. And I just rub my arm and I'm like, "Yep, yeah, come on. Tomorrow will yeah. be another day and we'll try it again. You know, if I'm not doing great today, we'll do it again, so.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. So how many groups do you have now?
0: So we have 13 monthly groups. Um, they range in a variety of Zoom groups, which we went to a, due to COVID, which was actually a wonderful thing because instead of just our direct, you know, little communities that we were having these groups and now we can reach anybody. And we have people from all over the country, people from Canada. Uh, we got England and Turkey as a couple of signups too. So, um, so anybody can do that 18 and over. And then we have specialized groups. So we have the men's group that we've discussed. We have a group for multiple loss because sadly we have a lot of people in our groups that have now lost a second child to this or a third. Um, then we have a grandparents raising grandchildren. They're a specialized group um, because they meet, uh, they have uh, from the state, there's a lot of grandparents raising grandchildren just in general, but not dealing with grief itself due to substance use. So we thought that would be a nice little subset of people to reach. And um, then- uh, we're going to have a significant other or partner loss group that will be starting probably next month, and then in addition to those, we have a few in-person ones meeting in Massachusetts in Quincy, Weymouth, um, Bridgewater starting next month, and Charlestown meets a couple times a month. So it's a, it's a real variety of if you want to do in-person or zoom specialty group or regular group or a combination of any of them, because once you're signed up for us, uh, you can sign up on our website, the There's a pre-registration there. And it, I just take some information. It's like a pre-screen Tony. So, you know, we make sure you're coming, you know, uh, to the right place. Uh, I find out how, you know, how long it's been. I have a little conversation with you. And um, once you're in that system, you're added to our email, you'll get our Sunday night email where I try to just put, so people don't get too much information. It's just the meetings coming up for this fall next week from the Sunday and any other events that are coming up. Like we're having a, um, (laughs) one of the moms walks up um, a a little mountain, it's big blue in, in Milton and she said, you know, I started walking up there and I was like, where is my son? Where did he go? So she yells his, she walks to the top and she yells out his name three times. And she said, I think it'd be great if we all did it together. So we've made a little event that anybody local can come. So that's on the 22nd of May and walk up that hill. And we're all going to shout out our loved one's name. So I think it'll be a nice bonding thing outside of a regular group, but we do little events like that as well. So, um, but they're all all that stuff is on our um, Facebook page and our website. And we keep that, the Facebook page private, just like in our group, you know, we want it there just for the people who have lost someone, um, not for the general public, because you do say things that, you know, people might judge you about, or think you're crazy about, like say that guy going to the cemetery for 33 years. Like, I think that's totally normal. What a great way to deal with your grief, but someone outside would be like, what's wrong with him, right? So we want to keep that closed group closed so there is um, a safe space. And I think that's a really important thing about grief support is, is making sure people feel safe.
1: So in the men's group, I know we have, uh, we have the there's at least five states represented. So how does somebody in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Cadillac, Michigan get into the local group? I, I found that. Um, how do they, how do they reach out? Where, where is the, that information out there that, that yeah. they would be able to find you?
0: So what has happened is, uh, much like this, I've, I've, I've been found by other people to just talk about the grief support. And I think that's spread. Do you know what I mean? Like, so someone saw our YouTube or someone saw an article about me or our group or, you know, something about Dave talking about the group. And and it just kind of spreads. Um, Social media does a lot of that. I I do do some social media advertising. So I'll target, you know, men for the men's group or, you know, grandparents for the grandparents group. And and maybe people share that. But um, it's it's wonderful that it's happened because what we hear from a lot of those people that are joining us from uh, different states is they have nothing. Where we have, uh, surprisingly for our small state, we have a lot of facilitators and a lot of available groups beyond the Sun Will Rise um, for people to access. So I'm really happy. No idea how they get there most of the time, but happy that they join us. Okay. So,
1: so what is the direct way right now if somebody's listening and they want to tell somebody about you or they want to get involved with the Sun Will Rise? What do they do?
0: I think the easiest way is to go to our um, website, thesunwillrise.org. There's a number of different pages there. There's a page to contact me. There's a page to um, pre-register for meetings. There's the monthly meeting page where it lists every meeting and every event we have coming up. There's general grief information. There's resource information. So in case, you know, you haven't lost someone, but you have someone struggling, you know, we have those links there to help a person. Um, So that's the easiest way. Anyone can always call me. My voicemail fills up a lot because I do get a lot of phone calls and I try to get them down. Uh, Email (laughs) is a good way as well. So my name, Robin, with a Y, -Y R-O-B-Y-N, at thesunwillrise.org. I can always email me and I promise I will email you back within four days. Um, it is, it has taken on a life of its own. At some point I'm going to have to hire a secretary <laughs> to help us keep up with the number of inquiries we get, but um, I'll work, you know, until late at night um, to deal with people who are grieving. And now I have some other tools in my toolbox because of um, Franklin Cook and Sad O D. brought that training to us they've also now created some one-on-one support for people so sometimes when someone needs something beyond uh, the group they want to just talk to another peer um, you know and don't feel comfortable in that group setting we have that we can now recommend we've got um, eight peer grief allies and almost to 16 the, the next group is almost done with their training but that's something that people can also ask for. It's only if you live in Massachusetts, though. Um, but if they are interested in that same way, they can call me and I can put them in touch with Franklin and get them matched up to a uh, peer grief ally, which Dave uh, Swindell is, is a peer grief ally as well. So um, I think there's a lot of different supports for people. Um, Andy, the people can always come to our groups, too, and not say a word. You are welcome just to listen in. And we will encourage you to, you know, do you, did you want to speak or whatever? But um, people can just be there to be within the companionship of other grieving people. And in, I think that sometimes helps.
1: In the very beginning, in Dave's group, we light a candle for the person we're there representing. Is that a procedure that's done in all the groups?
0: So in the summer rise groups, we have a consistent. Um, we have a consistent opening. And guidelines. I think guidelines are important, so everyone understands what's expected in the group. And then um, I do do a candle lighting, but our my facilitators are allowed to do something that is special to them. Some type sometimes um, I know one of them takes a vase with um, a, an empty vase, and then as the people introduce themselves, they add a flower for each person. So we do some type of ceremony at the beginning. Then the chunk of the meeting is the discussion, you know, our peer grief back and forth, whatever we want to talk about. And then we always end with a closing and, you know, either unlighting the candles, some do a poem. Um, some do like a quick go around with, you know, just a couple closing words on how they're feeling. Um, but we try to keep the structure the same. So if you go to a Sun Will Rise group, you know what to expect.
1: Okay. Now at the end of the group, can you remember this, the, the ending Statement that is you.
0: No, I, ca- I can't. I can't. um okay.
1: <laughs> Well, I can. I, I, I can just say a little bit so people yeah. understand that. Yeah. That the whole point of it is whatever you hear there, you keep there, yeah. and try not to take, you know, everybody else's problems home with you, or right. at the end of the day with you. So it's like uh, that. It's it's easier said than done.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I'll tell you that.
0: Yeah. Um, and- and we say it's a reminder to let you know that you're not alone. So even if you're leaving the place, you're still when you're not alone. You can still reach out in between the meetings and stuff too. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've known Dave Swindell for close to 2 years now and I feel like I have a bonding friendship even though I've never met him in person.
0: Yeah. You know, we have. He's a- quite a guy. He really is. Yeah. He he is.
1: And Franklin is too. Franklin's a little different. Yeah. He's he does his thing in his own way. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was on International Overdose Awareness Day, which is usually August 31st, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you do an event in it's in Braintree, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. You
1: operate on that event and, and uh, explaining to people International Overdose Awareness Day is, is a worldwide day mm-hmm. that we try to make everybody ac- across the world familiar or aware of, of this, um. And some people like to call it overdose awareness and other people are now causing it, calling it like fentanyl poisoning. Mm. So you could call a couple different things now. But um and my <clears throat> my jury's still out what we yeah. want to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I go back to the person who started it. So, you know, as a a purist to her who started it in Australia, <laughs> I think I'll continue to call it International Overdose Awareness Day. I mean, she, yeah. she really made it a, a real big thing. So, uh, you know, a lot of our communities do vigils that night um, or walks and things like that. And I wanted to do something on a smaller scale, a little intimate. And um, so we decided... To uh, do a butterfly release, um, so it's like ten o'clock in the morning. We have, you know, a, a person who has lost someone is our speaker, so we remember why in, we're there, what this is about. Um, I do let the politicians speak at this one a little bit so that they're, I bring them there because I need them to hear that story of whoever we choose. I think it's important not to be lost on that. And I don't let them be the center of attention, but it's important for them to be there. And then, um, the, the butterflies are live butterflies. They come shipped in these little flat packets and I keep them on a cold. You got to keep them cold until like right before, but then we have little printed envelopes that they're in and it says something different each year, but like, it'll be like, we'll never forget you or whatever. And then, you know, I'll read a poem um, and then we all open up the envelope and the butterflies fly away and they'll, they'll linger for a little while. They'll land on your shoulder or whatever. And it's a really emotional, beautiful um, scene. um, And it's something different. You know, um, another one of our communities, a little farther down situate, does a beautiful sunrise, you know, morning thing, you know, first thing in the morning. So there's something like in the morning, in our early, early morning, our later morning and then later in the day and then evening. So International Overdose Day has become like a full day thing. So you anybody around here can choose what they want to go to and take part in. Yeah. And
1: one of the bigger events that I've been going to for years now. Um, is the Brockton vigil at Brockton high school. It was actually at Massasoit when I first started going and now it's at Brockton high school. And I'm not sure where it'll be this year, but it's, it's in the evening hour. And Mm -hmm. and, um, the courage to hope show kind of came out of that event. Mm -hmm. That's how we started this program. This is where I got the idea from. And the, the one thing that we have is a slideshow and when I was there seven years ago in the slideshow, there were 26 pictures yeah. of people in the area who have died from a substance abuse overdose. And this year there were 396 pitches. Yeah. And, I, and I usually and I read off every name mm-hmm. on the radio, and it's like I couldn't believe there were 396 how yeah. much it's grown in the six years. Because we went two years without having, without having a session because of COVID, right? So, yeah.
0: And those are only um, in the bucket too for the names that should be read, you
1: know. Oh yeah, there's a lot of people that never send a picture in, and the child's not represented, you know. Um, so in October, there's a, um, a, a an event called the Finding Hope and Grief Conference. Yes. Um, do elaborate for people, and I know it's on, I think, October 21st and 22nd.
0: Uh, 22nd, 23rd. 22nd. Oh, oh, it's not bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's going, it's specific for loss due to substance use. So we would think we're the first group to do this, Um, and it's going to be two days of workshops. Um, They don't have everything set yet, but if you go to uh sadod.org. There is a little link that you can click so that as soon as the information gets released, um, you will be notified and you can sign up for tickets. There's only 215 tickets because this is our first conference. So we were starting off, you know, fairly small. Um, so, but I believe from the initial interest that we will probably sell out. Um, I'm going to be doing one of the workshops um, and uh, if you know David Kessler, who um, is a pretty big name person in the grief world who has also lost a son due to substance use. He's going to be um, speaking there. He's going to be live uh, zooming in because he has a a conflict with the date, but he is going to be live talking to us and taking questions from everybody in the audience. Um, I'm in charge of the remembrance committee. So I'm going to be having um, a candlelight, uh, vigil part of it. And then I also um, am doing a glow stick ceremony, which if anyone's been to our Beanstalk Music Festival and, and Braintree Vigil, that's a, a major part of it. And it's a really moving different type of um, remembrance event. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I think people will get a lot out of it. There'll be education things, there'll be artistic things, there'll be healing things. So there'll be something for everybody there. And its a, I don't remember the exact price, but it's very low cost. But if, if money is an issue, um, so still you know, sign up because we have scholarship money for uh, people if they and economically you know, can't afford it.
1: And it is at the Double Tree Hotel in Shrewsbury?
0: In, um, is it Shrewsbury? Or if you say it's in Shrewsbury, I believe you. If they want to spend
1: the night at the hotel, do they have a special rate so we can they can stay at the hotel that yeah, night?
0: There is a special rate um, that they've blocked off a number of different rooms so people can, can get that.
1: Very well located.
0: Being yeah, right it's right off close, a to, close to right the highway. In- yeah, we, we made it so it was... Um, like convenient to wherever you were coming from, the state we kind of picked as close to the middle as we could, um, so anybody could access it. The only thing is public public transportation is kind of difficult, so people might want to carpool. Um, you know, if they're coming from the city or something like that. Yeah, it's
1: one forty six from the south and three ninety or two ninety from the north, and ninety and nine from the east, and mm-hmm. same from the west. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I. Have- <laughs> I travel a lot, so I know the roads pretty yeah. well. <clears throat> yes. So before we run out of the last few minutes here, Robin, what did I not ask you that you'd like to tell the listeners?
0: You know, I one thing I would like to say, you know, as a grieving person is that I've always found helping others helps myself. And in any small way, if you're feeling really bad, really lost in your grief, just doing really something simple. It doesn't have to be big, like me making a foundation and 13 grief groups, but something small for someone who is, is hurting or, you know, you can guide them in some way or become a friend up here to grief, grief, just friendship with someone else. It can make a huge difference in your life. So um, I, I think it's important. I liked Tony, that the people that you have on have, give hope to people, you know, that you want to die yourself when you lose someone that means so much to you, but there is hope, you know, there, you can, you can live an okay life, um, but bring that person along with you and do stuff in their memory. So I just, I'm, I'm just thankful for you to give everybody a voice here.
1: Yeah. I always say that if, as long as somebody is within your heart, they're still alive.
0: That's absolutely true.
1: To me, that's the most Im- important thing. And, and, you know, we just have to keep on going. Yeah. And as you say, stay busy. I know you're a type A personality. I can see that all over you. Uh, the, <laughs> the queen of the insurance industry. So, um, so and the 13 grief groups is uh, pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what it was like just running one. Yeah. So I, I get it. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty complicated. So this is the um, I want to thank you very much for being on and and those of you who if you have a relative who lives outside of the Boston area you can tell them to go to wmexboston.com and they can listen live and obviously if they're in the Boston area 1510 a.m you'll be able to hear Robin all right I thank you very much Robin for your time and this is the courage to hope and you've been listening to robin houston dean who was the founder of sun will rise foundation in the name of her son and thank you very much robin
0: thanks so much